0: Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so before I introduce my guests, I just want to talk about a few things I've been watching. I am recording this intro a little bit earlier than normal, so I haven't done my weekend watching yet because the weekend is getting very busy all of a sudden. I don't know. With the COVID stuff loosening a little bit, I find myself doing more, which is good, right? So um, I do have plans this weekend to watch the Demi Lovato documentary on YouTube. So hopefully I can update you on that next week. I've really only seen one docu-series in the last week on Netflix called Under Suspicion, Uncovering the Westfall Case. It's about a Belgian former member of parliament accused of murdering his wife in a hotel room. Um... It was good. I mean, it's definitely sort of your typical true crime Netflix doc for five parter. Um, It's in subtitles. So you have to be prepared for that. It's interesting, but I don't really want to spoil it for anybody. But I kind of took issue with the way that they produced it because I think the entire thing was kind of like potentially one big spoiler alert. So... I don't know. I was kind of annoyed at the end of it, but it's still an interesting case. Um, and then the other thing I'm watching I just started that I'm really loving is Genius Colin Aretha. So Genius is an anthology series that Nat Geo does uh, about geniuses. First season was Einstein. Second was Picasso. And the third is Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, who's just a, a literal genius. She's probably my favorite ever. And so I'm really it's a scripted series um, with Cynthia Revo in the Aretha roll, who's just incredible. So I'm really kind of just taking my time with it and gonna be watching that over the next few weeks for sure. So now on to my guest today. I am talking to Andrea Blaugrand Nevins. So Andrea is a filmmaker. She's a also a writer and a producer. She has done a wonderful documentary called Hysterical about female comedians and kind of the life of women in comedy. I love this documentary. It kind of hits all of the check marks for me in terms of the stuff that I'm interested in. It's women and comedy and kind of their experience in this very specific world where sexism is probably a lot more heightened than other businesses. Um, And I really, really enjoyed it. A lot of great familiar faces, a lot of laughs and a lot of more sort of poignant stuff as well. So, Hysterical is premiering April 2nd at 9 o'clock on FX, and it will be streaming the next day on FX on Hulu. And speaking of Hulu, we also talked about a wonderful documentary she directed from 2018 called Tiny Shoulders Rethinking Barbie. I love this doc. I believe I spoke about this last week in my intro and told everybody to watch it. It really is so well done. We get into it and sort of how. I wanted to know, like, how does she even get access to the behind the scenes at Mattel when they were at this inflection point with Barbie and, and figuring out how to reimagine her and her body and the different versions of her. So I highly recommend it. Watch both. Um, and she's also done some other great stuff we talk about. So enjoy my chat with Andrea. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Lisa. Nice to, nice to see you and, uh, and talk to you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you too. I'm glad to finally meet you. Our mutual friend, Todd Schatz, has raved about you for years, and I've always been curious about your career. So this is an honor and a pleasure to have you on.
1: Same back at you.
0: So to be here. I am want to start talking about your newest film, Hysterical, which I absolutely love. I sent Robin, and um, the press person at FX and Hulu, the, a note about how in love with this movie I am, but I actually haven't told you yet. So let me just first tell you, I love your movie. Oh, thank you. I also think I'm a target audience because I happen to love comedy. I love women. I love female comedians and... Was just you know a huge fan of Joan Rivers, who you start the the, the movie with, and 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 have so many wonderful. I've, and I've been lucky enough, like Judy Gold, is a friend who was in my movie, so I've been lucky enough to have some relationships with some of the women that are in the doc. So it just so great. And and I want to back up though, um, and and ask like how it all started. Like did you did you
1: decide you wanted to do this, or was it were were you tapped to direct? Like how did it all happen? Um, I was tapped to direct, uh, but you know, you have to, you've got to figure out whether it fits in what it is that you feel passionate about, because as you well know, once you take the deep dive, you're, you're in it and, uh, and you have to really want to swim in it for a long time. So I had just finished Tiny Shoulders, which was um, about Barbie and a kind of way of looking at the last six years of women through this lens of the doll uh, and uh, and I wasn't done with that exploration. And so when this was brought to me, and I'll explain a little bit about that in a moment, uh, it, it fit into my deep dive in that comedians are pushing the outer boundary. And I hadn't quite gotten there yet. Um, and uh, and so I was really interested in talking to these women and what it felt like to speak their truths at this particular moment in history. I'm so um, glad so you brought up like-
0: Barbie, by the way, because we will deep dive into that. I I, I plugged that in my intro uh, from this week's podcast because I, of course, was doing research on you and, and ended up watching it and absolutely loved it. But I do I have I want to talk to you about it later. So so. I guess Campfire Media—they're the ones who produced this. Are they the ones who came to you, or was it Jessica Kirsten? Like, how did it come to you?
1: It was Campfire. Um, uh, I think they were, you know, looking for somebody who was interested in in this in in looking at women. And uh, Jessica Kirsten had come to them because she had observed that this was a really extraordinary group of of women that she spent her time with, and uh, and felt like there was something to say in that. And, uh, and so when they brought that idea to me, um, Jessica became the, the perfect gatekeeper in that she could open the doors to this world that otherwise I wouldn't get to step into. And she is such the comedian's comedian. She knows everybody and commands such enormous respect. It meant that I got to walk into a world, um, uh, kind of, kind of as an insider, which is, which as you know, is tough as a documentary filmmaker.
0: Right, especially in comedy, which is so clicky, and they've been friends for years. You know, some of them twenty over twenty years. So, was this group that you focused on? It was a great range of women, and obviously, there's so many women to choose from. But I thought you you selected, you know, kind of your main focus or the majority of interviews came from about I think seven or eight women. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Although we, we probably did a lot more. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we cover 15 different women. We have 15 different characters, which is a tough thing, but we felt that, um, that everybody's coming to it, coming into it from a very different place. Um, and, and speaking about different truths and that, uh, that in this particular case, we were going to do the, the wide and not the specific. Um, and it was also kind of an imprimatur of the film when I walked in, that was that was the direction that they were going. And so um, I felt like it was a, a, a fun way to go in.
0: You know, as somebody who's been going to comedy clubs forever, that's like my primary form of fun entertainment. And I used to go in New York. I remember seeing Jessica when she first started, because she, I don't know if you came across Aaron Foley as, uh, in, the, in the mix, but she was a good friend of mine back in the 90s in New York. And so we used to go out to the comedy clubs and constantly... You know, it was one woman, just like you got into sort of the history. You know, it was it was was like make room for the one woman. And then but then even then, some of the women were sort of doing like these girls nights where it would be all the women. And those were the times that I just laughed the hardest. And one of the things that I thought about when I was watching this was um, Mark Maron, you know, obviously has a very, uh, very popular podcast. One of the things he used to do in the early years, which drove me crazy when he would interview mostly the men would say, so who were your guys? Who were your guys? Like meaning like who were your who were your comedy heroes? And it was such a triggering <laughs> question. And so I felt like this documentary was the answer to that question.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you feel that way. Uh, Cause I felt similarly that, that we were, we, not me, uh, society, the comedy uh, uh, gatekeepers were keeping 50% of the point of view away from us. And, uh, you know, and we're not going to, we're not going to change the society unless we can listen to everybody's point of view, everybody's reality. Um, and, and so I was so glad to be able to spend time with these women. I'm so glad they fought really hard to be heard. And that was what, that was really incredibly moving to me. Moving yeah. I mean, this. I think
0: still fighting, right? I mean, it's not, it, it's still, I mean, we can get into that later, but, but it, it's still not where it should be. Let's put
1: it that way. Not even remotely. (laughs) Not even remotely.
0: So it's interesting that you talk about Barbie and how you sort of were continuing that story because the Barbie movie was really, to me, it was like such a history of feminism. And so this doc really looked at, um, looked at not so much the history of feminism, but the history of female comedians through that lens of like the evolution, right? So when Comedians like Phyllis Diller started. It was or Moms Mabley. It was all about, you know, oh, I was lucky to get out of my house to do this comedy and get out of the kitchen, right? Like that was the only thing they could talk about.
1: Well, they they had to put themselves down in order to be heard because um, taking a mic and standing up on stage is a power move, and women are not are, are really questioned when they're in a role of power. And, uh, and think about it. They're standing alone up there and they're kind of telling you what to think. And we just are still really uncomfortable with that. So if you can imagine back in the 50s and the 60s when these, um, when moms Mabley and even earlier um, Phyllis Diller were getting up there, uh, they had to downplay their femininity. They had to shut their voices in order to be heard. So So they had to do things like self-deprecation before they could make a joke. And they also had to downplay their beauty. Um, mom's Mabley was a, a dandy. If you saw her outside of the comedy club, she, she dressed to the nines um, often in a, a kind of um, male garb. And, uh, uh, and when she got on stage, she kind of dressed as a grandma in order to play down any inkling of sexuality, because that's the other tricky thing is that, um, is that if you're going to appeal to this audience, which tended to be male, you had to Shut down the possibility of sex in order to again be heard. Um, and Phyllis Diller did the same thing. She was a very pretty woman, but she made herself look like a crazy woman, spiking her hair and uh, you know teasing it out and wearing outlandish costumes um, that downplayed any sexuality again to be heard. So it was a, it was a fun movement from Barbie, which you know you get into all kinds of issues of beauty um, to to the issues of beauty. In standing up on stage and being heard and having that power role.
0: You know, I saw Moms Mabley, the documentary that Whoopi Goldberg made recently, like within the last few months. And it was so much even more complicated for her, not just being a black woman, but she was also pretty much by all accounts, she was a gay woman. So it was even more complicated because she was kind of couldn't, even, you know, forget being a woman. She couldn't definitely not come out, you know, as a queer woman. So the layers are just crazy.
1: Precisely.
0: And I um, think, and I feel- you know, that's a whole other thing even today with queer comedians. And you hear they still feel marginalized, not just women, actually, but men too. So that's like a whole other layer. That's your next doc.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would
0: be fun. <laughs> I, I wrote in my notes, I think this pretty much sums it up. God, Jerry Lewis was such an asshole. <laughs> <I> <laughs> and I've always known that. And I always knew the famous line, but goddamn, I wonder how much damage he, like, Can we overstate or am I, or am I overstating how much damage he actually did to the comedy community by degradating female comedians? Like, is it just, do people just blow off and think it was dumb or people took that seriously, right?
1: I think people took it seriously in part because they wanted a, a reason to, to shut down. They didn't really, you know, listening, listening to women means examining some of your own garbage. Um, and I think that's tough. And it's something that, uh, you know, when people are speaking truth, sometimes it's really hard to hear. So it was it was a, it was a good uh, permission structure for for men to dismiss.
0: You know, it's funny because 2021 is such a different lens. Right. And even just in the last three or four years, so much has changed. And you, and you get into that in a really good way about just sort of have the Me Too movement, especially in comedy. And God, we're still getting. Every day it seems like with Chris Delia. I mean, you can't even keep up in your own doc. I'm sure you couldn't wanted to make some last-minute changes, you probably couldn't make, right? And Absolutely. so um one of the things I thought of was, you know, just in terms of um women having to hold the weight for the men, right? So like when Louis C.K., when all of that came out, or even Chris Delia, it's like, you know, everyone goes after the the women. You know, and even seeing Judy Gold and all of them sit with Jeff Ross, who's had his own accusations. You know, I'm thinking like, why are you sitting next to him? What's wrong with you? You know, and I think that's our knee jerk reaction as a culture is to blame the woman for the the man's misdeeds. And I thought like, especially in comedy, and there's so many asshole guys. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of good guys, too. You know, women have to I mean, and you and you go through that so much. So talk about some of the well, a lot of the obstacles that women you know being on the road being in sort of the man's club what were kind of like the main things that stood out to you that you ho- you heard over and over again from these comedians
1: uh, over and over i heard that that the key to becoming a great comedian is stage time you have to you have to get up there every single day in order to find the confidence and find your, your voice and if there's only one woman at a time allowed on stage then then stage time is not available to you. So you can never get good. So t- talk about like barriers to entry. And so the time when they might be able to get on stage was, uh, was going on the road. There was more availability. There were m- just more places. And, uh, and s- but when you go on a road as a woman alone, you're putting yourself in danger. I mean, we're still, it's still not okay for us to be out at night alone. I mean, that's Im- impossible to fathom, but true. Um, And so they would, uh, they would go on the road and they would be put up in hotels that were really crummy, uh, that, that the men might recommend and say things like, oh, it's fantastic. There's a great pancake house right downstairs. And the women would arrive and say, no, there are doorways out to the street. And there are men who are following me up and banging on the door. That's, that's terrifying. Uh, Or they would be picked up at the airport by some guy who the comedy club sent out who was a raving lunatic. Um. So they really had to brave some frightening situations in order to just practice their art. And uh, and I found that um, kind of a um, all of our experiences writ large. You know, I think all of us have had to, as women, have had to uh, break down um, barriers, but po- probably maybe not have to put ourselves in that kind of, unco- that level of uncomfortable situation. So it's really a testament to their desire, you know,
0: right? And their and their perseverance and and you're right. I mean, it's it's when you're competing for so few spots, also, you have to just hustle like, you know, ten times. It's the famous, you know, Fred uh, Fred and Ginger quote. You know, she had to do it in heels backwards. Um, exactly. So, you know, the the relatable intersection there for I think most women, not like you said, not so much us, you know, having a job that puts us in danger in that way. But I think it's more when you're in a situation which all of us have been many times over where it's all men or almost all men, you kind of have to talk their language, you have to hang, you can't be uptight, you can't, you know, kind of carry the feminist torch. And that seems to be at least the way that I observe sort of the comedy community, the women who have been the most successful have kind of been ones who hang with the guys. Like they've still been subversive in their acts, but behind the scenes, you know, they're cool. Like they, they don't put up a fight. They don't complain, you know, they, they, they toe the line. I don't know. That's my observation. I could be wrong.
1: I, I think that again, I feel like that's true for all of us. Uh, you know, in order to fit in, you have to swallow a lot of who you are. And I um and what there's a moment in the film that we use of, of, of a comedy set of Amy Schumer's where she says, thank goodness for this younger generation who came to us and said, you've been putting up with this your whole life? Like, let's do something about it. And all of us who are uh, you know, a little bit older are like, oh my God, you're, you're right. Let's do something about it. And, and so I think that, uh, that what you end up feeling at the end of the film is that women are beginning to see each other in that way. Like, oh, we can talk about this. Oh, it's, you know, it's not just me. And so often we blamed ourselves. Like if we're not fitting in, then it's our fault.
0: Absolutely. I I love that clip that you put in of Amy. And and it made me, a lot of it was very moving too, because I feel like I'm going to cry right now because you realize and and you, I'm so glad you you put this in about the woman who called out Harvey Weinstein. Um, and she's you know probably Kelly Bachman. Yeah, Kelly Bachman. Thank you. Early twenties, I'm guessing. Mid twenty. I mean, young. Um, and that bravery, and that you know the specificity of the bravery, not just sort of like men suck. Uh, like how am I standing in front of this rapist? It was crazy and. And I see it. I mean, I know you have kids. I have a 13 year old daughter who, you know, now they're taking up arms at her school over the sexist dress code because, you know, women, uh, the girls get dress coded. If their shirts, if their skirt is too short, you know, and they think it's sexist. And I'm like, God, I'm so freaking proud of my daughter because these are the things that I thought, but I was too afraid. We just didn't have the right context to, to do it. I mean, I guess we could have, we, but it would have been
1: mm, pretty, I don't think we really had permission. Real. I, yeah.
0: I don't think we had permission either.
1: Um, because because I, I I remember feeling a certain door opening during the Anita Hill trials, and and feeling like okay but, you know now we can march through but but we were shut down pretty quickly we were questioned in the way that Anita Hill is questioned and and so we in order to get forward and not be not have the door shut on us by the people who are uh, holding the reins of power uh, we we had to go back to playing by the old rules. And I think this new generation of women are like, no, nope, uh, uh.
0: it's so, it's exciting. I mean, it really is, is wonderful. And it's interesting. You call your documentary hysterical and there's a reason and you get into it. And, and, and I really didn't get, you know, I just thought, oh, it's cause it's about funny women and, and actually there's more to it. So I'd love for you to talk about sort of the double meaning of the word hysterical and traditionally like how women have been talked about in, in the culture for, you know, for hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it is, it's, it's, it's fascinating and a, and a kind of a deep dive, but his, his hysterical comes from the Greek word for womb. And so there had, there had always been this idea that women, because they, you know, because they give birth, because they bleed, because there are all these things that are, are, are considered, um, uh, uh, out of your control, uh, that there was a linkage between women's behavior and being out of control uh, and that hysterical was a female problem. Um, and thus a reason not to be heard, uh, a reason not to trust that point of view, um, which is, is horrifying if you think about it. I mean, if you think about the fact that that we as women can nurture life and, uh, and give birth, uh, that's an extraordinary kind of power and, uh, and to have cast it in that way. I mean, there's, there's, there's a moment where, where, um, uh, David Wisnant, who's who was my editor on this, and I were playing with definitions because of because of this definition of hysterical. We, we use definitions throughout as chapter markers, and uh, and we made up the definitions. I mean, they're they're based, they're based in truth, but we try to to uh to to put it in the hysterical point of view, um, meaning that the idea of the movie. And and we were thinking about this idea of narrative and how narrative really is. An opportunity to recast and reframe. Um, and uh and I think we're at that pivot point in history. Um let's let's recast and reframe all these words and really look at how they're restricting us.
0: Yeah, I mean, not to get too deep into that, but I don't know if you've you been watching the Alan Farrow documentary series? Oh yes, and I listened yeah. to your I listened to your
1: podcast oh, because you I
0: because saw, I, I got, I got activated. Dive. Yes. It's a deep dive. But it just made me think of that because of the the narrative of reframing Mia was crazy, right? Mia's crazy. Mia's crazy. And that's all you thought in your head. Mia's crazy. Mia's crazy. And then you're watching, you're like, Mia doesn't seem crazy.
1: <laughs> and I bought it. You know, yeah, I bought it. You that, did,
0: Cause you, at, were at, you were groomed. You were groomed for 30 years. Yep.
1: And, uh, and that, you know, it happened around the same time as the Anita Hill trials, right? That trial. And so there was all of this, uh, the the female as um as harpy as crazy as hysterical. Literally hysterical. Right? That was that was Woody Allen's people, hey, yeah. me, you know, playing oh, with the narrative.
0: Oh yeah. And they were very effective. But you do a great job of juxtaposing, you know, Sam Kinison and uh Bill Hicks, Bill Burr, all these angry, crazy, I mean, yelling on the top of their lungs. And they're, I mean, they're the creme de la creme in the comedy world. You know, they get away with that, but you know. We can't, we can't do that. Women can't do that. I mean, it's just, the double standard. When you, when you lay it out the way you did, it's so offensive and, 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 amazing that it's been able to go on for so long. And I think comedy, like you pick such a good comedy really distills so many of those issues, right? Because
1: of the sexism is so pronounced. It's so pronounced and so accepted. You know, it's a, it's a stage where you're allowed to have a voice and there's no editor. Right. You know, it's, it, there's not a writer. Somebody didn't have to read it and decide how to, how to cast it and how to light it. It's just the individual. And that's what you're walking in to expect as an audience. And so, so male anger was allowed and female anger is terrifying and you won't be invited back.
0: That's right. You better behave. So one of the thing I, of course, I always love to sort of know the behind the scenes of how things get done. So what was really interesting is that you have these very glossy, beautiful interviews And then clearly COVID hit and you had to do some Skype interviews and, or however you decided to not Skype, but you know, so, so talk about like, what was the timeline? When did you come, come up against COVID? And then how did you pivot to complete it? Because it really, I think you actually, this is a, this film is a great example of a very seamless way of kind of weaving the COVID and non-COVID stuff to make it feel like it didn't feel jarring is what I'm saying. It felt very seamless and it's, but I'm sure you weren't happy. (laughs)
1: Um, it might've felt more jarring had we not gone through a year of this already. Um, if you had just seen those, that might, that might be
0: a good point. Right. Okay. So when did you start?
1: So, so I've got a, a couple of stories about that, but, uh, but we started, we shot in the fall of 2019. Uh, and so we were deep into cutting. We had really come up to our first solid rough cut where we all felt like we were moving in the right direction. And that's the point at which you want to go back and revisit things and do a deeper dive with the uh, with the people who are, um, tel- telling your story, uh, helping you tell the story and, uh, and that, and we couldn't. Um, so, uh, so somewhere in there just before people had come up with ways to send one camera in and shield them and all of that, I, I, I just decided, you know, we just need this, we just need the sound bites in order to get to the next past And, um, And so I, yeah, so I was the camera person and the sound recordist, and I just called people. I was like, "Put on your headset, but also record here and also record there." And um, and the remarkable thing is that when you walk into a room with somebody to do an interview, um, it's it takes a little while to get intimate. There's a there's a, a maybe a camera, maybe two cameras, a sound recordist, uh, maybe a gaffer. It's a lot of people in the room, and to get that really intimate one-on-one as a subject, you have to remove a lot of barriers, a lot of self-consciousness. And the remarkable thing about one-on-one Zoom was it was just me and the comedian alone in the room, and we had already established a relationship, and so it just it felt a little deeper. Those, those moments got very real, very fast. And I'm super grateful to all of them to, for trusting me, for trusting me with some of those really poignant moments in their lives.
0: Yeah. You could tell there was an intimacy there. And I wondered like, was there pre-COVID, was there a female crew behind the scenes? Like, was that important?
1: uh, It was important to me, uh, not, not just for the female gaze and how we all might see it and hear it, but also um, to give women Opportunity. I mean, the whole point is to, is the more women have opportunity, the more we can be out there. So, uh, so it was really important to me. When we went in to do the interviews, one of the thoughts that I had was I wanted to interview women in their home space because, uh, because there are two different places in which I feel women have, um, have their own domain, um, so that on the stage for these comedians, but also at home, there's a whole other world that really falls mostly still on female shoulders. And so I wanted Our Tiny to, shoulders. Our <laughs> tiny shoulders. Yes. Um, I wanted them to be in that space. And I wanted to frame it so that you got to see these interiors. Um, and and then the funny thing about COVID hitting was that suddenly everybody was in their interiors, and you got there's a whole stories behind um, you know, what you have behind you when you're in your Zoom room.
0: <laughs> I want to move on and talk a little bit about um, Tiny Shoulders, Rethinking Barbie. That's like where you start your film is basically um, this Mattel team kind of rethinking what is Barbie in 2016. So I'm curious, first of all, everyone should see it. I already told everybody in the intro they need to see this movie. How did you get access? Like, how did this even happen? How did this, how did you get access to the team? how did you find out they were... Cause you are there behind the scenes before the public even knows this is happening. How did it all happen?
1: Uh, I had a friend who was, who was on the team and I was at my, uh, you know, Jew to Jew. Um, I was at my nephew's bar mitzvah and we were c- having a, one of those, um, uh, cocktail conversations. And she said, I'm so excited to, this is Julia Pister, by the way, she's an awesome filmmaker. Um, she said, I'm so excited to go to work every day because we're really thinking about what it means to be a woman today. Who are we? What place do we have? What role should we be filling? And uh, and I, I said, uh, um, that's the subject of a documentary. Can I come in and talk to you guys about this? And, um, and she went to talk to her boss who very fortunately for me, um, was kind of like an old school punk rocker and had loved my first movie, the other F word. And so she said, sure, I'll, I'll talk to her. And, uh, and it was a pivot point for them because the, because the the doll wasn't doing well. And when you hit a kind of rock bottom, you're open to things that you probably weren't before. And, um, you know, they have a whole war room where they have to deal with the daily onslaughts that come to Barbie and, uh, and they were prepared to really examine themselves. And that was the process they were going through. So they felt like maybe having a camera there would be um, part of that self examination process. Uh, But they had never done that before. Yeah. I'm thinking that's
0: gotta be scary as hell for them to open up. Like it it felt very unvarnished.
1: It was, it was terrifying for them. So I said, I had to sign, a series of, uh, of non-disclosure agreements, et cetera, et cetera. When we first went in and after the first round of interviews, um, they decided to let me into this whole other door, which was the rethinking of their bodies. So it wasn't just rethinking the idea of the doll, but rethinking the bodies. And, uh, and they felt like, okay, let's, let's make this happen. Let's, let's be really honest with ourselves and have the cameras rolling. Um, So it was, it was, it was kind of an amazing, amazing moment.
0: It was, it was amazing because first of all, you got to see like the manufacturing from the early days. I mean, the archival, the way that you filmed it and you filmed the Barbies, it was all so artistic. And I think, you know, every movie has um, a, a texture and an artistic landscape and, you know, all of that. And, now that I've seen so I saw the other F word also like seeing your your kind of filmography everything really just matches the subject matter so well and I thought with Barbie like the the pacing the the artistry everything was just perfect it just felt spot on
1: Well thank you thank you I had some uh, marvelous artists working with me um uh some some really beautiful filmmakers so um it's not it's not all me it's a lot. it's a it's a team when you're when you're making a film as you know
0: it is. And, and, and I don't know that well, cause I've done one and, and I, you know, very, very naive when it comes to the whole world. So I did mean to ask you like with hysterical and with Barbie, did you have, or with hysterical, like it's on FX Hulu, were they already on board from the beginning or did you finish it and then sell it to them? Like, what was the process of actually getting it placed?
1: Because, uh, well, Campfire and, and Jessica Pearson, uh and Jim Serpico, um, who, uh, who was working with Jessica, uh, had, had brought it to FX as an idea and FX loved the idea. And, and so I, I came on after that. So this is the, this is really the first, uh, feature length film that I've done that was, um, or commissioned basically, uh, the, with, with, a uh, um, tiny shoulders, it was, you know, I, I met with Julia and, uh, and just started filming. It was like, this is an opportunity. I have to make it happen. Uh, and because we had non-disclosure agreements, I couldn't go out and explain what it was that I was working on until after the doll had been released. So um, so there was a good year that I was filming just sort of shoestring.
0: Wow. Wow. Amazing.
1: Before it we went to Hulu. So um, it's- it's
0: So it was released on Hulu? Because um, I that's how I saw it, but I wasn't sure if it was actually released on
1: Hulu. Yes, they became a wonderful partner uh, after we were at that point where we could talk about it. That's great.
0: So yeah, so it's it's easy for everyone to watch. It wasn't as easy to find the other F word. I had to go to Tubi. My newfound. I'm watching all these old shows on Tubi, which turned out to be great because they're not available some other places. So that
1: worked. Yeah, the other and- F word has moved around. It's been and it was I, uh, I think on Hulu briefly and uh, um, on Showtime, and um, it it, it moves around. I think it's on documentary plus now. Okay.
0: I need to, I still need, I still need to download that. Um, So that one was from your own personal passion, right? Of growing up kind of like a punk rock kid and then wanting to see where these guys who are sort of still doing their thing, but also fathers talk a little bit about how you brought your own personal narrative to bear, like why you were interested in making that.
1: The other effort. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't really a punk rocker. You know, I was a, a, you know, private school kid in New York city. Uh, I went to school on the Upper East Side. I, was, it, I would cross the street if I saw somebody in punk rock garb. They seemed scary to me. And uh, um, my friend, uh, Kristen Crocker, was friends with one of these punk rockers who'd written a book called Punk Rock Dad. And she said, read this book and tell me if this would make a good movie and uh, a good documentary. And I read it, and it really spoke to the struggle that I was going through as a young mother of who am I now? You know, I'm I'm no longer the kind of um anti-authoritarian. I'm I'm an authority here, right? I've got to make decisions about somebody's life and uh and make sure they're fed and clothed and sleeping well. And uh and so it, it was a it was an opportunity to look at that in a much more extreme way, which is always a fun and interesting way to look at anything that you're struggling with personally. And uh and I just felt in love with these guys because the scariness that I saw was in fact covering this very poetic inner self. Uh, I mean, these guys are tough, believe me, but all of them can speak to, uh, I'll say tenderness. I'll just say tenderness that, uh, right? I mean, yeah, no, definitely.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that juxtaposition was what makes the movie work. It's so amazing to see these guys like doing crazy shit on stage. And then they're like, Hey, you want to go to school? Like,
1: Right. What are you going to wear? Right.
0: It's, it was very sweet. Very sweet. So what even got you interested? So you, you grew up in Manhattan, Upper East Side,
1: um, Well, I was Upper West Side. I crossed the other, you know, people, but my friends wouldn't come and play at my house because it was (laughs) so dangerous.
0: (laughs) Right. The big scary Upper West Side. Uh, Sorry, you went to school in the Upper East. So where did you, like, did you go to college for thinking you wanted to be a filmmaker? How did you end up in this world?
1: Um, I... Uh, in high school, I was really interested in in poetry and photography and marrying those two. And when I got to college, I took an amazing course with uh, with Robert Coles, uh, where we were looking at kind of the, the literature and narrative of social justice. And in that context, I saw Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA. And uh, that made the most sense to me as something that as, as a way of speaking that I wanted to learn how to do. And so that was it. That was it. It's all, it's, it's all I've done since then. I mean, I had to I had to work my way up. I was a newspaper reporter and then I worked at National Public Radio and then I worked for Peter Jennings and his documentary unit, um, all to get to a point where I could be making my own films um, with a sense of authority because of course I was a woman and didn't feel like I had. The right to a voice or that kind of authority. I really felt like I had to climb the ladder very slowly.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and so now that the the path is so different for the youth, um, yeah, like it used to be, I I came up similarly, like my goal is to get to 60 minutes. So then eventually one day, maybe I could do docs, but news was like, right. The only thing, there was no entertainment what advice would you give to young aspiring filmmakers, specifically documentarians who are just out, you know, because a lot of, I do hear from a lot of young people who are sort of like trying to figure out their career. What do you think the path is or what would you suggest to them?
1: I think the path is so miraculously open right now. I mean, back when when I was starting, you had to have access to a film camera. You had to have access to a Steam Beck. I mean, these are all really expensive items. And now you can make a film on your iPhone. Uh, you can go out and build a narrative on your iPhone and send it out there and find an audience. It's it's just upside down um, in the most wonderful way. So I would say just go out and tell those stories. I went out with my 15 year old son the other day because he had to tell a story about juxtapositions in landscapes, and uh, and we went out and were shooting um, new construction in Manhattan and um, and a housing project that's nearby our our apartment. And uh and just finding those shots to tell a story in which you don't need words is such a it's such a wonderful thing to do. It's just my I've never tired of it. Oh, I, I don't love think that. I will.
0: So are you living so I know you guys are here too in LA. Like what's the now I'm being nosy. What's the situation? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wait, um, what's going the, on? the situation, the situation is uh because of what my my husband's job is, is both in New York and LA. And, uh, and so we have a place in New York and LA because of that. And because of COVID and the kids aren't in school, we've been able to spend more time here. My parents are here. My dad's 90. Um, I won't say how, how old my mother is because she's fabulously young. And, uh, um, and so, uh, so to spend time here with them and my sisters-in-law who are both here, oh, that's um, so nice. Has been, yeah, has been a, an upside to um, a lot of grim stuff this year. Of
0: course. And what is, my sister lives in the city, but they've been out of the city um, for quite a while in New So what is the city like? What is it like now?
1: I've loved it. Yeah. I loved it. We were here. It's quieter. Um, you have to make appointments for things. So when you <laughs> go into a right. museum or you know, way walk on line. the High Line, yeah. there's n- nobody there. Uh, it's just a way of being in the city that I adore, um, without, without as much cacophony. And, uh, and so you just get that pure, delicious New York. Um, so I've, I've tried to spend as much time as possible. My sons are, are very rooted to their LA lives. Um, they're both in high school. So it's, we've been going back and forth. My daughter's 21 and she's in school here. Um, so, uh, on the, on the East coast. So oh, was she in college on the, on the East coast? She's in college on the East coast. So she, she uh, so she, although she hasn't been this year, um, <laughs> such a mess. She's been online. <laughs>
0: right. I know everything's yeah. It's crazy. been a crazy year. So, so wrapping up, is there, are you working on something new, anything you can share? Is there something you want to do coming up?
1: There is, there is. I, the, the next project that I do, I really want to be a, a deep dive into a single character because I spent, um, a. 18 months now, um, really enjoying these 15 characters, human beings. Um, and, uh, and so my next one is I think going to be really a deep dive into one individual. Um, and I don't have that sewn up yet, so I'm not going to talk
0: about it. Okay. It sounds exciting. (laughs) Well, we'll have you on to promote it when it's done. I'm so happy. Tell us again, how everybody can see Hysterical.
1: Hysterical is going to be on FX on April 2nd and then it will drop on Hulu the next day on April 3rd, uh, which is super exciting. And uh, and we're also excited that internationally it's going to premiere at Hot Docs at the end of April.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, mm-hmm. Andrea, it was so great to meet you. Thanks so much for doing this. And again, I really enjoy your films. I love this film. I hope everybody sees it when it comes out. And thank you again.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been such a fun conversation.